This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. If you're new here, then you get a special welcome. 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 I'm Dave Etler, and lucky for you listeners, I'm not the only one here. Joining me on the mic today, Aditi Patel. Hello. Also, Arisa Mahapan. The old gods have heard your pleas. And if you <laughs> and if you listen really carefully, you might sense the presence of another person. No, it's not Betsy DeVos, come to cancel Special Olympics. It's Dr. Marley Doyle, a psychiatrist at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. She specializes in reproductive psychiatry. She's here with us today because in a previous show, we did briefly discuss having a disability in medical school, and she reached out to say that she is legally blind, and she offered to be on the show to talk about that subject more fully. Dr. Doyle, welcome to the Short Code Podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So before we get to the nub of this show's gist, Dr. Doyle, tell us about your work as a reproductive psychiatrist, because as I've said on the show before, I'm always kind of fascinated by the number of different... <laughs> jobs that people in medicine can have. Yeah. Well, so I um, started out doing adult psychiatry and I was at um, Northwestern in Chicago. And then my third year, we got this, um, you know, perinatal psychiatry researcher um, that came and gave grand rounds. And I remember sitting in the audience and I was thinking like, I had no idea that this was a field. And then I thought, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> and I really liked it. I mean, so basically, then I did an elective, and then I decided to do a fellowship, and the rest is kind of history. But basically what the field is, is um, treating women with mood and anxiety disorders mostly, though sometimes we do psychosis as well, um, during pregnancy and postpartum. Yeah. And so we do a lot of um, preconception counseling with women that maybe have a history of um, a mood disorder, and they're wondering what to do with their medications during pregnancy. Um, we'll treat women uh, throughout pregnancy, maybe that develop depression or anxiety, and then in the postpartum, um, and then know a lot about kind of the different medications in pregnancy and breastfeeding. And so it's a really cool field. Um, it's really rewarding. I like working with women during that time, and I like kind of how it has a lot of effects um, you know, because if you help the mom, then that kind of helps the attachment with the child and sort of has this ripple effect. And so that to me is, is kind of neat to feel like you have an impact that goes beyond just the patient. Yeah. I know from, um, people that I know how important, um, that kind of work is, especially if you're, you know, if you're sort of well-managed, um, your condition is well-managed with medicine and then all of a sudden you're pregnant and you have to decide, well, can I, can I keep taking my medicine? How's it going to affect me? How's it going to affect the baby? Huge, big questions for a lot of moms. Yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. And uh, there's a lot of gray and there's not ever a yes or a no. Um, it's most of the time we have to look at the case by case and uh, kind of go from there. So it's, yeah, I, re I really enjoy it. Dr. Doyle, I should point out, you, uh, you graduated from Creighton University in Omaha in 2010. So you're not some grizzled old attending who's completely forgotten what it's like to be a med student <laughs> at no. this point. 
Um, I still have nightmares. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> don't you, don't try to don't you. This show does not varnish the truth too much. So you don't. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about your condition and how it affected your work as a medical student? Sure. So I was uh, started wearing glasses early. Um, I think I got my first pair of glasses at the age of four, mm-hmm. and. Um, my mom noticed that, you know, she would point out planes in the sky and I wouldn't see them. And so she thought that was kind of odd and then took me to the eye doctor and I got glasses. So through my whole childhood, we kind of just thought it was um, just normal kind of corrected vision. Like I just would need glasses. And then finally, um, when I was in high school, uh, my optometrist was really kind of baffled and said, you know, I don't understand because my vision could never be corrected to 2020, even with glasses and contacts, I just never got there. And so she astutely sort of questioned that and said, I don't really understand why we can't get better. So then she sent um, me to a specialist and I had all these uh, tests done. And then I had the um, abnormalities when they did this uh, optic uh, visualizing. And what it looked like was probably something similar to retinitis pigmentosa, but it wasn't exact. So it sort of fit in this weird category. And I think they ended up calling it cone rod dystrophy, which is sort of this like wastebasket sort of term. And then, um, so that was when I was 17. And uh, the interesting thing is now kind of being a physician and then looking back on these experiences, I've kind of it's sort of shocking how the medical system can kind of uh, fail in a lot of ways because I got this diagnosis and then that was it. Like nobody um, asked about what I was going to do for a career or talked to me about getting accommodations or um, driving uh, anything. Like it just was kind of like, all right, well, I'll see you back uh, sometime. And then, so I, I sort of just, I don't want to say I forgot about it, but at that point it wasn't um, really severe. I mean, I was still driving and I kind of just um, kind of went on and, and didn't really. It was, your, it. it was like your life at this point. I mean, I imagine that to some extent, you know, maybe you're just like, oh, this is how it's always been, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it was just like, okay, you know, but I didn't really have a sense. Nobody could tell me like if it was like how bad it was going to get or, um, and so it was just. I don't know. I think when you're 17, you're just like, okay, well, it, it probably won't get any worse. <laughs> you know, yeah. you sort of have that like hubris. So like, yeah, yes, right. this will be fine. So I start college and I'm like, yes, you know what? I'm going to be pre-medicine. Um, that seems like a good idea. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I did and I, I just entered pre-med and I kind of just went through it. And I had, no, I had no idea like what accommodations were. I just sort of... Um, figured it out. Like I kind of figured out a way to do stuff without being able to see all that well. Um, and so nobody really knew. And then I applied to medical school and I felt like I needed to disclose it in my personal statement, um, because I didn't feel right about not disclosing anything. And I did, and nobody brought it up and nobody said anything. And when I started again, it was like the same thing where nothing about accommodations. I kind of just like, just went through and sort of did what I always did. And, uh, and then finally, when I hit my surgery rotation, you know, I kind of had to say something because <laughs> I couldn't, I mean, I just, again, I was in a situation where I didn't really feel comfortable not being able to see something clearly. And I felt like the risk was great. So they kind of worked with me on, um, 
being on rotations that weren't going to be kind of heavy on the suturing, you know? And so I kind of got through and again, like that was sort of it and just continued to go on. I actually stopped driving in medical school, um, which was a challenge. So I got in a car accident um, and brightness has always been a thing that's that's been difficult. Um, And so I got in a car accident on this really bright day and it was right before I started my third year. It was right before boards actually. And so then I stopped driving, which was really difficult to not be able to drive for your clinical years. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you're not, maybe if you're not going to a rural school, you don't understand that, you know, the students in schools like ours often get sent out to distant places in our States to uh, do say family medicine rotations in our case. Yeah. Well, and even just like within like getting from home to just the main hospital, you know, they luckily had a really supportive husband, but even so just that loss of independence was Mm -hmm. really difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, So then when it came time to pick a residency, I um, decided to, to focus on, you know, programs that I thought would be good, but I really focused on cities that had mass transportation. And so that's how I ended up in Chicago, um, which was really great. And uh, so I, it was good and bad because there I didn't need a car. I didn't have to drive, but then nobody really did. And so I didn't really have to disclose my vision condition, even starting residency. And at this point, I mean, I'm, at this point, I wasn't using a cane and I still was kind of able to get by, but using a computer became, it was kind of getting increasingly more difficult. Sure. Uh, and again, I didn't know anything about accommodation. So I just kind of just, I don't even know. Like I look back now and I'm like, everything was so much harder than it had to be, you know, but (laughs) (laughs) as a medical student, you guys can speak to this. Like you just so badly don't want to, to, you just want to blend in and you want to stick out for good reasons, but you don't want to stick out for for reasons that are like out of the norm. You just like want to get through. And I think (laughs) like that too, where it's just like, I just need to like, do what I need to do and get through this is sort of, I guess what I, I don't know what I did. I feel like so, you're, I, I feel like you're uh, ringing a lot of bells for these guys over here because yeah. with right, that, with right. that wanting to, uh, wanting to, uh, sort of blend in. What do you guys think? Yeah. It's like on one hand, yes, I know that you can ask for help, but you also don't want to like become known as, Oh, that medical student who X, Y, Z. Yeah. That's causing problems or even asking for help sometimes can be hard because you don't want to get in the way or, break the rhythm up of the attendings and their rounding. And that's so true. So I'm going to stop you there because there's a couple of things about your story that surprise me. And one of them is that nobody in med school, even after you disclosed your disability, nobody in med school, A, brought it up it seems like, and B, offered any accommodations. Like during the interview process. Like during the interview process, or even while you were in school. Oh, no. Oh, no. And there was a couple times, like, uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy now, because I think that things have changed um, in in a good way. But if, and this wasn't that long ago, like you pointed out, but um, it really was, you know, and I was even kind of offered the advice, like when I would disclose it to a mentor or something of just like, oh, well, I can't even tell. Like it was this like compliment, you know? See, this <laughs> is, this is, this is interesting um, because you could consider, I mean, until you started carrying a cane, which I think you said didn't happen until um, you were a resident. Oh no. I, so this is like a personal struggle. I have, I have been so stubborn about it. I still don't use a cane on most days. Oh, okay. Okay. 
And I, and I should absolutely 100%. My ophthalmologist is like, he has like a, a heart attack because he <laughs> gets seriously injured. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this, so your disability is in essence, an invisible one. Yes. Um, you may have been offered more accommodations if you had a visible disability, but it's almost like they could ignore it. Well, and, and to me, it's interesting because I guess it is invisible, but to me, it seems like I'm, I'm continuously surprised at how people don't notice yeah. because like, so my vision right now is like 20 over 400 or 20 over 500, um, <laughs> yeah. depending yeah. on the eye, it's bad. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm, I'm continuously surprised that people don't notice m- more. And I, it is, and it's funny because like, you would think that I would like to sit here and say like, oh, I have all the answers. And I've gotten to this place where I am, you know, fully disclosed at all times, but it just, it still isn't true because medicine is just not the best environment um, for kind of accepting differences, especially when it's like a medical condition. Cause I don't, this is just a kind of a, a theory, but I kind of feel like having a disability is you're sort of a, like the embodiment of the medical system failing. <laughs> and yeah. so I think it kind of makes people uncomfortable in a way. Yeah. You're as, as a, I think most people see physicians, you guys can verify my perception, but most people feel, see physicians as like paragons of health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like two separate entities. There's the sick and then there's the doctors and they don't mm-hmm. ever cross over. Which is, which of course is ridiculous. Yeah. Because right? doctors get sick all the time. I mean, even, yeah. Even if you, even if you start off uh, uh, with, with no problems whatsoever physically at some point, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna need, you're gonna be sick, yeah. <laughs> you know, in some way you're gonna need, you're gonna need some extra help. I think that's yeah. really, Dr. Doyle, I have a question for um, not only myself, but for our listeners as well. Could you speak a little bit about kind of the definition of legally blind and um, what that means? So I feel like people are more comfortable using it than just saying blind. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I use it because it just it seems like it, I don't know. It just gets more well received or people know what it means. But technically, um, the definition is that your vision is 20 over 200. Okay. Or that it causes a functional impairment. So some people that, you know, they might have like uh, peripheral vision loss and be legally blind. And even though their central vision is is better than 20 over 200. So there's a couple definitions, but the, the most kind of recognized one is the central vision acuity um, standard. And that's so that's kind of what it means. Yeah. And that's twenty two hundred with um with all corrections like with contacts and with glasses and everything in correct. Mm. Okay. So basically, you can't be corrected beyond. Mm. You can't get be corrected to be better than twenty. Over two. Twenty correct. over two hundred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I find it interesting that you that you say you know you use the word legally blind because people can sort of hang their hats on that. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's um it's easy for them to understand. The funny thing about that too is that it took me a long time to even come to that term um, because I used to just say that I have like a vision condition or a visual impairment. Um, and I think that it, I found that it kind of just confused people. Um, people didn't know what I meant. Uh, they didn't understand what it was that I couldn't, couldn't see. And then also looking at me, they didn't really understand cause I looked fine. Right. So um, I think that it, it, was kind of in the past couple of years that I was like, this isn't working. I need to come up with a new term. And so that's sort of now what I say. <laughs> yeah. It was a long time to even get there. 
So one thing that's interesting is that you didn't have to convince people that you were able to be a physician, it sounds like, um, because people didn't really notice. Yeah, right. Um, And so this isn't, you know, for people who have visible disabilities, um, it's different, isn't it? I, Uh I would imagine. Um, we, last semester, um, our first year students got to hear from, and I'm going to mangle this, but Dr. Oluwa Ferranmi, Akan, yes. Akanlami, and, um, I, uh, University of Michigan. yes, um, mm-hmm. and he has a connection with somebody who works here. And so he ended up coming here to talk to our, um, first year students. He's a family medicine doctor. Now he, he, he started out in ortho. And in his third year of his ortho residency, he was in an accident that paralyzed him from the chest down. Uh, over time, he regained some mobility and eventually he was able to um, return to medicine. Um, in fact, he returned to be a family doctor. Um, and in the clip I'm going to play now, he's addressing the class from his wheelchair. The, the wheelchair is special because uh, in one quick motion of his legs, it sort of transforms almost immediately to allow him to stand upright. And that's relevant in the clip I'm going to play. So here I come as this random ex-orthopedic surgery, family medicine physician with a wheelchair disability, trying to then insert myself into this process where they could have very easily said, for patient satisfaction, for patient safety, we don't think that this is the appropriate place for you, we just can't fit you in. They did what I like to refer to now as assume competence. They assumed that I would be able to do the work, and then they just allowed me to work with them to show them how I could. I had to find out a way to be able to deliver the baby, right, and then put the baby on mom's belly. Now you already got to see this chair. As a resident, you sometimes get to meet the patient before they deliver. But when you're coming into the shift, if you, someone else's shift is ended, it's my shift, and I come in, I, that might be the first time I've met them. They might say, Dr. Obalong, we need you in room two. So then I'll go there, baby's popping out, and I do this. The first time I pulled this baby out and stood up, the lady almost lost her mind. <laughs> <laughs> and she completely forgot that she just pushed a baby out and was like, what in the hell is that? <laughs> and then little like, well, big brother is sitting there, he's like, he's a trans- <laughs> I mean, look, it really looks like that, you know, like, they don't know if I'm going to, like, fold up into a car and then drive <laughs> So, but, it, but what I use this to say that no one could understand how I was going to do it, right? But they allowed me to be at the table to then be able to show them how it was possible, right? The next step of this is that, unfortunately, vaginal deliveries don't always work out. And we have to then quickly get back into the OR and get the baby out. So that could have been another step where they say, Look, Dr. Ogunami, you know, that's great. You got that little cool chair. People love it. But now we're talking about business. When we have to get into the OR to get this baby out, this is time, right? And we can't, we can't waste time. But once again, they assumed competence. And they allowed us to show how I would scrub it and get into the OR. And then what they found out when I was in the OR with them, no disrespect to my peers in family medicine, but when you get into the OR because the vaginal delivery is not going well, you have to be fast. And they then realized that across the table from them, they had a person with three years of surgical training. And so very quickly, all the OBs realized that having Dr. O in the room is actually an asset to us because we don't have to teach him what he needs to do. But this is just another example of showing you that if you judge someone based on what they cannot do or based on what you think they cannot do, you will miss out on an opportunity to find out so much about what people can. So I want to say that again, if you 
judge people by what they cannot do, you will miss out on an opportunity for them to show you what they can do. When we talk about admission to med school, one of the things we think about, one of the things that med schools have are technical standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? I mean, we've, I don't know, did you guys consult the technical standards when you uh, applied to med school? Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the technical standards standards was like oh you have to be not saying that this has any relationship to me or anything but just like something that i noticed it's like you have to be able to communicate with patients and other team members without like interpreter or or without like or without having anyone's having to stand in for you and that was just something that like stuck out to me like "Hmm, i wonder if this was a problem in the past well i mean so what do you think dr doyle i think that uh it's funny because I, I didn't ever once look at the technical standards, and I don't know if this is just like, this has been something that's come up over the last 10 years. Um, it seems like there's more and more conversation about them. And I think there's some places that do it really well, and then there's some places that do it really poorly. But I think that there's a really fine line um, between trying to, you know, obviously you want to train competent physicians, um, but there's a fine line between competency and discrimination. Right. Uh, so you really, they have to be worded very, I mean, there's some that just are terrible and uh, make people almost not, con- unfortunately, probably not consider applying. Um, yeah. I wanna, so for instance, I looked at ours yeah. um, and I, um, so... Uh, you know, for instance, the first one is that students must have the functional ability to observe demonstrations and experiments in the basic sciences and must have phys- sufficient use of the senses necessary to perform a physical examination. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and that, you know, sort of when I was thinking about um, you, Dr. Doyle, I was wondering how you, uh, how, I mean, how you managed that. Um, for instance, if you go to anatomy lab, Mm-hmm. You know, I imagine that you have to see things and mm-hmm. be able to identify fine uh, anatomical structures and even dissect um, mm-hmm. um, fine anatomical structures. Did mm-hmm. you just sort of stumble? Th- okay, but I, this is why, like, you've thrown me for a loop here, basically, because you said nobody would, nobody was like, yeah, whatever, you know. Yeah, no, I just, I just, uh, I figured out a way to do it. So, like, if there was, I would try to. Um, not necessarily remember where the structure was itself, but I would try to remember where it was in place in relation to other bigger things that I could see. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily, like they tagged everything in in string, but it, I did have an issue because some of the string that they used was like red, um, and then some of it was tan. And I have a lot of trouble with contrast. And so if it was a tan string and it was tagged, I had a really hard time finding where the tag was. And so I, I, there was a couple practicals that I just, I mean, I never failed luckily, but like did not do well on, which was frustrating because it wasn't for, because I didn't, didn't know the information. And I think that's been one of the hardest things for me is that I don't feel like sometimes my performance reflects my ability. Yeah. And I, now I don't know why I, I didn't even think to go to the anatomy professor and say, Hey, could you make sure to use this other string? And here's the trouble I have. Could I do a practical like one-on-one, you know, with one of the TAs or something? Um, it didn't occur to me. And and so I really kind of 
look back on those times and I just think, gosh, that was really way harder than it needed to be. Um, and as far as physical exam goes, I mean, I think there's all kinds of ways that you can accommodate without necessarily being able to see like for rashes, you know, sense of touch is a good way. I mean, there's magnifiers. Um, I never felt like my vision limited my ability to do a physical exam. Mm. Um, going into, but you know, I picked psychiatry for a very, for a reason, um, because that wasn't going to be a big component of what I do day to day. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know how I would, I probably would have felt differently had I chosen something like internal medicine or something like that. Yeah. But I think that's what the important thing is, is to recognize that just because somebody doesn't have full use of one sense, we accommodate in all kinds of different ways. So maybe they can do the same exam, but using other senses and, that that's where the standards fall short. I actually wanted to ask you, doctor, about um about your specialty choice and if your disability played into that, or if even when you were considering like choosing what specialty you were going into in the first place. Yeah, it a hundred percent did. Um, because I knew that I had this condition, I didn't know how bad it was going to get. So when I came to choose a specialty, I had to think about what could I do in the worst case scenario. Um, and psychiatry was kind of the obvious answer. I feel fortunate, though, that I love psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> I might have chosen it anyway. I don't know. But um, I, I think that it definitely played a role. And I just feel really lucky that it, it actually is a good fit for my personality as well. It really would have been quite terrible if I felt like I was not, if I had to do something I wasn't passionate about. So I am lucky in that regard. So when it came to studying, just out of curiosity, with the amount of information as medical students we have to process, a lot of that being in textbooks, um, how did that work for you in particular? Like, did you find audiobooks or were you able to use like magnifying glasses or how did you approach studying? Um, So I just I didn't really read textbooks. Um, I uh, luckily all of our lectures were podcasted. And so, um, cause even sitting in a lecture, I mean, I would sit there, but I couldn't really read the slides. I don't even know why I went, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. In 2010, it, but before 2010, your lectures were podcasted. Oh yeah. I feel yeah. like, I feel like here at Iowa, I mean, you know, I don't want to sell our school short, but I feel like here at Iowa, we were still going like, <laughs> what is this podcasting? <laughs> it is the panopto. Does it need? This, yeah. We're not going to record lectures. That's a terrible idea. Does it require oh. human sacrifice? <laughs> No, it was, it, does. it was the most amazing thing. And so I would just, I would podcast all the lectures and then like listen to them when I would um, go for a walk or something. So I'd probably listen to each lecture like twice. Mm-hmm. And then um, I would, we could pull the slides up. And so when I could do it on my laptop, then I could like see it better. So then I would be able to like go through the slides again. And then, uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I bought the textbooks, but you know, I didn't really, I, I was able to learn all the information doing it in other ways. Did this factor into your choice of picking medical schools then? Like um, having difficulties with vision at the time and not kind of knowing what sorts of resources were available or were you aware of what resources were available for podcasting, for example, like if a school didn't have it? that was like a purely happy accident. Um, wow. You, you lead a charmed life. Yeah. (laughs) I know it really was. I, I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me. I didn't think of it. I think at this point in this, I was probably looking back like in a, you know, maybe a healthy or unhealthy stage of denial. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Worked out for you. I'll tell you that. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I was just kind of like, eh, I didn't really think about it. I just am going to do it. Um, and I think that honestly got me through. And so in a way it was good, right? Um, cause I was able to kind of do things that I think I wouldn't have the tolerance to do now. Uh, but yeah, no, that was purely happy accident, but I am like looking back, I am a huge advocate of medical schools, any school really providing different avenues for students to learn. Um, not only for disabilities, but people just have different learning styles. Sure. And so mm-hmm. you need to kind of, it's not one size fits all. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about that is no doctor does everything. Yeah. Right. You know, and so, um, but, but in med school, you, you sort of are required to at least do everything in a certain way, a little yeah. bit, yeah. Like, but then it's also in a, yeah, as you say, in a certain way. And so if you can't do it in a certain way, I, I suspect sometimes in some schools anyway, mm-hmm. um, it's like, oh, well, you can't do it my way. Well, then, you know, you get an F or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's the other issue I have with technical standards is that, you know, I, they don't apply to a lot of things. And so why, like I felt this way when I was on surgery, I, I knew I was never going to be a surgeon. Yeah. Uh, and so it was kind of like, so why do I need to, to do this? You know? Um, yeah. But every medical student feels that way, whether they're. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then there's like the regular medical student, like, Oh God, why do I have to sit through this six, um, six hour long procedure? And like, Oh boy, I can't, I can't do this because I literally can't go for more than three hours without going to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the um in the involuntary way (laughs) yeah Yeah, um here's another technical standard i find interesting um uh in addition the candidate must be able to learn and demonstrate the ability to recognize limitations in their knowledge skills and abilities and to seek appropriate system with their identified limitations what's hilarious i think about this conversation is you were just like yeah i'm gonna keep going i'm gonna keep doing what i'm doing (laughs) nbd um it, I mean, and it, you could, you could, you could s- sort of say that that might have been the secret of your success is to not really worry too much about your abilities mm-hmm. and just compensate for them. Mm-hmm. I find this very commendable because I'm thinking about my journey through med school without any sort of limitation like that, and I still struggled. <laughs> there were days where I thought I wasn't going to make it, and I can't even imagine what it would be like to have, you know vision impairment to the point where sometimes it would be difficult to go into surgery. Well, see, I think, I, I think, and, and Dr. Doe, please correct me if I'm wrong. I think this is the problem that people with disabilities have, or people with disabilities have in getting into med school and being accepted as a medical student and as a doctor, which is that the rest of us are looking at people as overcoming some huge obstacle in their lives. Yeah, I guess And how true. the hell are you going to do that? Right. Yeah, I, I would. And so um, I think it is it is a struggle. And I think that uh, I, I felt very acutely in medical school that we weren't sort of allowed to have any problems, right? Like you, you were just expected to kind of show up and work hard, um, not ask for anything, right? You're not supposed to have any needs. Yeah. And, and so yeah, I can identify. <laughs> right? It's just a weird, it's a weird culture. And it's really kind of, you feel a lot younger than you are. Like you're not treated like a mid 20 something adult, you know? <laughs> and so I do, I think it, there's a lot of um, kind of just the, the, the culture itself does not allow you to feel like you can disclose 
any differences, whether they be disabilities or like you said, just having to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Like you just yeah. don't ever feel comfortable being like, you know what? I have needs. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it's just, it's not healthy really. And we need to work on changing the culture. The AAMC in uh, 2018 released the first report of its kind, which I kind of find interesting. Um, it's entitled Accessibility, Inclusion, and Action in Medical Education Lived Experiences of Learners and Physicians with Disabilities. Are you familiar with that um, report at all? No. Really interesting. Basically, the authors cited three reasons for the report. Um, first of all, inconsistent policies and procedures among medical schools related to disability, including those around disclosing and accommodations. And they, are, they remain common. Um, the second one is inconsistent support um, for people with um, disabilities in med schools. And the reason they identified for that is that colleges, uh, the medical schools in general have few people with disabilities enrolled. And so there's low demand for any services. So whoever is in charge of disability services, probably a dean or maybe some staff member, um, that person probably has other duties and so isn't able to be an expert. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, I, I know about this because I have a lot of hats that I wear in the College <laughs> of Medicine that, that even these guys who I hang out with all the time don't necessarily know about. And I call these other duties as assigned problems um, <laughs> where you're unable to sort of achieve mastery of anything because, yeah, you know, there's not really that much of a demand for that, but somebody's got to do it. And then the third reason they identified was a lack of awareness of their obligations under laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. um, some schools even deny all requests for accommodations in clinical settings under the belief that patient safety would be compromised. That's not what the ADA says. The ADA says that you have to have an individual assessment of safety risks, not one based on stereotypes or generalizations. In other words, you have to take a look at the person that is asking for accommodations and figure out what that person can do. Yeah, everyone mm -hmm. isn't everyone is entitled to um to have a discussion about what accommodations they they may or may not need. So, question, when it comes to these policies though, how would a medical school assess this if you're getting like 10,000 applications yeah. a year? Well, so they're not supposed to actually. Um, yeah. and so when you are applying, you're supposed to just not like you have no obligation to disclose. And so you don't, they really shouldn't do any assessment of it um, at all. And then when they get, when you get accepted to medical school, like what our medical school does here is in the letter, it says, if you need any accommodations or you have an accommodation request, here's the number to the disability office, please call um, and they'll do an assessment or whatever. Yeah. So it's not until the time of acceptance. Um, I suppose if it was something, uh, you know, because by definition, they have to provide reasonable accommodations. And so I suppose if it was something that was, um, oh, I'm trying to think, like maybe the school just truly didn't have the resources for, then that might be something that they would need to be alerted to beforehand. Um, right. So for instance, you know, if it would cost an exorbitant amount of money yeah. to retrofit your facilities mm -hmm. for a particular disability, for an individual person's disability, then you know, that would be considered um, an unreasonable accommodation. For me, I have, you know, this program called ZoomText that I can use on my computer and it costs like $1,000, you know, that's yeah, reasonable. Right, that is a reason, that would be but reasonable. Yeah. I, 
Yeah, and I think that, uh, but it wasn't until, well, this is always, and I still don't have the answer to this, because I I still struggle with when to disclose, right? Mm -hmm. Because on one hand, you don't want to be, you don't want to be misleading. You don't want to feel like, you know, somebody accepts you to something, and then you're like, aha, however, (laughs) I have all these things that you need to consider. But at the same time, you don't want it to be used against you. Um, when they are kind of considering you for a position, because nobody would ever probably say that they don't want to hire you because of your disability, right? That would be illegal. But maybe they would come up with another excuse, you know. Like, so I always worry about that too. And I, yeah, that I know that happens in the in the work world. Um, mm-hmm. That's for sure a problem. You know, the the, the other thing is is that um, that the that this report pointed out um, is that. Uh, they did a survey for the report, and 2.7% of MD students um, self-reported disabilities to their institution. Um, this is compared with an, an approximately 11% um, disability rate among undergraduate students. So people with disabilities are underrepresented in in uh, medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's number one. Um most of the disabilities disclosed were things like ADHD, learning disabilities, and psychological disabilities. Um, if I can do some quick math here, that's about 70% of disabilities disclosed. And then there's chronic health at 13%, um, visual uh, disabilities at 3%, mobility at 2.5%, and hearing at 2.2%. Um so I, you know, that's sort of a, to give you a general idea of the scope of the, of the situation there. Mm-hmm. That's really, um, that's surprising. Uh, I didn't, I've never, I didn't know those numbers. So that's really helpful. There, I wanted to talk about disability as diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the things that this report noted was that while ethnic diversity, for instance, ethnic diversity scholarships are available and ethnic diversity is valued um, by admissions committees, right? Mm -hmm. But scholarships for disabled people don't seem to exist. And there's a, and that push for inclusivity and diversity just doesn't include people with disabilities. This despite knowledge that, um, you know, patients actually don't have much of a problem with that. In fact, they can find it very comforting to have a doctor with a disability, somebody who, um, I don't know, is sort of like them. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever had a patient who was like, oh, just like me, Dr. Dr. Doyle? No, I've only disclosed to patients a couple times when mm-hmm. I thought it would be um, of therapeutic benefit. And it always goes well. Um, I will say that. But I also, you know, psychiatry is so interesting, right? Because we try not to talk about ourselves and we try not to. And so I do... I don't ever want to make somebody feel like they can't. Okay, I'll give you an example. I don't want to make somebody feel like that if they're having a bad day, they can't talk about it with me because they're afraid that it seems petty, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I actually don't really disclose very often to patients because I don't want to make them feel like they can't be true with their genuine uh, feelings and experiences. And I don't know. I don't know what that if that's um, valid or if that's just kind of um, my thing. I'm not sure. Or well, I think it makes like sense. I mean, from yeah. a yeah, I mean, logically, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's not yeah. supposed to be about you, and so right. 
So I think it's just psychiatry is different in that way. And, you know, I still kind of can pull it off, right? So I don't necessarily have to. But again, like it is surprising how many people either willfully don't don't notice or actually don't notice. But like, you know, my computer is pretty obviously uh, uh, large. Like I have my, my text is huge, right? And it's funny because like, people don't really ever comment on it. <laughs> and it's funny to me because it's like, okay, it's pretty obvious, but <laughs> you're not going to ask, I guess. I'm not going to tell you. So, okay. I don't know. I guess who would, who would sit in there in the, in the doctor's office and say, damn, your text is big, bro. <laughs> Some yeah. people do. Some people do. Like every now and again, like one of the residents will be like, what's going on with your epic? Um <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, you know, we, we also talked about, um, we, we touched on this a little bit and, and, um, uh, Dr. Okunlami mentioned it, you know, there's this, there's this, uh, assumed competence idea. Mm -hmm. So you have benefited from a viewpoint from other people that you are competent, mm -hmm. right? Um, I imagine that for people, uh, and, and so did Dr. Okunlami, fortunately, Mm -hmm. Um, people just assumed he was competent. They, they required a little bit of demonstration, um, that he, you know, show, okay, well, how would you react in this situation? You know, we need you to get into the OR fast. How would you do that? Mm -hmm. Um, for instance, or how would you, um, how would you, uh, deliver a baby and give it to mom mm -hmm. kind of thing? And so he did have to demonstrate that, but they assumed he could do it. They just wanted to see how. Mm-hmm. So this sort of assumed competence thing, it seems to me to be sort of antithetical to the idea of these technical standards, mm -hmm. right? The technical standards seem limiting yes, um, in a lot of ways. And I don't, I'm, I'm not really sure, I haven't seen a ton of technical standards documents, but I've seen a few and they all seem to be sort of, you know, gatekeepy, if I can, yes. if I can say that. They feel um, very, uh, like... EYA, I guess, for lack of a yeah. better. Yeah. Like, we have to say these things. And then that way, if we have a student that then we will, we won't be liable or, or something. Like, it feels like it's kind of the spirit of it feels legal to me. Yeah. And, and I don't know if. There was a recent court case on this, actually, at a, one of the major medical schools. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was in, there, there have been a couple, actually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the results have been mixed. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, um, I do know one case that happened at an institution that I, um, that happened at the, at one of the medical, medical schools I was interviewing at, oh. um, is where it concerned a medical student who was accept who was initially accepted into the program. Um, medical student had ALS and was wheelchair dependent, but her, um, her exception was later rescinded based on the fact that she could not do, um, she could not do chest compressions to CPR and that she could not do, um, home visits to homes that were not wheel, um, wheelchair accessible, and those were listed as part of their technical standards. She appealed to the court, and um, the court, um, then the court ruled against her, saying that the medical, the medical school was all right in, um, in dismissing her because due to, um, due to those technical standards. This was a case where, um, where she wanted to go into pathology anyway, so it's not like she was going to be doing chest compressions yeah. on a regular basis. And on one hand, I understand the medical school's liabilities and I understand their desire to stick by technical standards, but you're going to have, have a really hard time trying to get me to not sympathize with this medical student who is, who cannot do part of, who cannot do like one task, one task that she, that 
she does not even want to in an area she doesn't even want to go into. If she was competent enough to get in, you know. Yes, she was admitted. Uh, yeah, I mean that's just that's so infuriating because now we've lost out on somebody that could have potentially been an excellent physician. Yeah, I, I think that's the. I mean, I just think that's part of the issue is you know the people who are making these decisions um, aren't they're sort of generalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, about people with disabilities. Well, they can't do these things. It's a very outside perspective. But you don't, yeah, sure. but the thing is you don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what they can or can't do. You haven't allowed them to demonstrate that. You haven't allowed them to, you haven't assumed their competence um, so that they can show you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe she can do, maybe she can do chest compressions with the right equipment. Who knows? Right. Uh, you know, ours, I think ours says something about, um, you have to be able to direct an activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I did see that. And um, <laughs> so that seems like a, a sort of a way around that, you know, like, okay, you can't do it maybe because of your physical limitations. But if you can, if you can direct somebody in how to do it, then, um, you know, I guess that's, that'll work. Um, and that, that's what often happens. I mean, if you're, if you're, a, it, this is my impression, you guys tell me if I'm right. Um, if you're a doctor, and there's a code, right? You're not the person doing all of the things. No. I mean, there is someone who is sort of directing other people in this situation. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. Depends on it. Um, it generally depends on the institution. But yeah, generally the doctor is not necessarily the one directly doing the chest compressions or administering the epinephrine or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You have assigned roles in each case. Because if the doctor did everything, then we wouldn't be able to provide optimal care, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a break in just a minute on the Shortcode Podcast. But before we do, I want to, uh, I'm wondering, uh, Aditi, are you running in Doc Dash 2019? I am. You are? <laughs> yes, I am. I knew you were going. I knew you were. Uh, so I, I, I'm, uh, I'd like to point out that registration for the 2019 Doc Dash is open. Um, this is CECOM's annual 5K race walk this year on Saturday, April 13th. I hear there will be more than 600 runners and walkers and Probably people in wheelchairs and all kinds of people uh, doing the dock dash. There's even a kids dockling dash and anyone can join the fun. Kids under 14 participate for free. Um, And did you know, Aditi? I did not. That you don't even (laughs) that you don't even have to run. You can sign up to be a virtual runner and the proceeds all go to the Iowa City Free Medical Clinic and the University of Iowa Mobile Clinic to uh, provide services to uh, populations that lack access to healthcare and provide training to healthcare students like y'all self. Woo! Do it. So, Woo! So, right. <laughs> that Adi- was really pain. That was, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Arisa has not signed up for Doc Dash. Um, I can I'm tell. Considering signing up for a virtual one, but I would, you said 14 years was the limit. Mm-hmm. Do you think I can pass off as perhaps a 13-year-old? I, absolutely. Because I could probably crush it. Absolutely. The Dockling Dash, you look, saying. You look, you look very young. Thank My you. plan is to walk it out, so. Okay. <laughs> to register, visit uidocdash.com. We'll be back in just a second on the Short Coat Podcast. You know what's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick? Podcast merch. And you know what's better than filling a podcaster's pockets when he doesn't need the money? Podcast merch that does something good. When you buy our t-shirts at theshortcoat.com slash store, every dollar we make will be given to charity. Spring 2019's charity is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Get your SEPT and bring some light into the world at theshortcoat.com slash store. 
Dr. Doyle, will you help us answer a listener question? Yes. All right. Here is the question. Hello, short coats. I love listening to your <laughs> podcast when I run. April 30th, yeah. the day pre-meds have to narrow down their med school acceptances to one, is fast approaching. I am wondering how you pick a school if you are fortunate enough to have multiple acceptances. Are there certain factors that are more important to consider than others? Thanks for the advice in advance. Sincerely, Anxious Pre-Med. Uh, two things. Very broad question, but we're happy to help. Yep. Number mm-hmm. two, by signing off as Anxious Pre-Med, pretty much described all of y'all. <laughs> and so that's, everyone ever. <laughs> that's the perfect, yeah. I feel like that's the perfect sign off. Yeah. Uh, even, even us men. Yeah. To an extent. So the question is, uh, you've got all these acceptances uh, for med school. Got to pick one. How do you yeah. pick? I would say, first of all, congrats. Yeah. That is amazing. If you have um, more than one on the table, I think that I ha- kind of have a, answer and then a really uncool answer okay so do you want me to start with the uncool or the cool one oh. let's do cool first how do you, let's do how do you, uncool first i'm having trouble deciding how would i decide no. between i'm sorry never mind go ahead yes <laughs> so i would say the cool the, the cool answer is you know go where you felt like you fit in the best mm-hmm. um where did you think the culture was the best where did you feel like you had the best conversations with um the the medical students did you kind of feel like you clicked um, because those are going to be the types of people that are drawn to that medical school. Those are going to be your future study partners. Um, and so that that matters because I think that whether people like med school or not is less about the curricula and the rotations and more about um, their relationships with their fellow classmates because you can get through really bad situations with a, a colleague that you really like can have a good laugh with. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so that really can make all the difference in the world. So I think fit cannot be underestimated. Now, that's, the a, uncool that's, answer, that's a that's a good, cool answer. I like that. It's true. It's yeah, really true. It and is that's true. Like how I feel like I made a lot of my major life decisions. And I actually have really fond memories of medical school. Um, I really enjoyed it and would, I don't know if I'd go as far as to say I'd do it again, but, uh, <laughs> but I liked it. I liked it. I thought it, it was, it was great. Yeah. So, um, the uncool answer though, is that I think that if you know what you want to go into now, um, then that can also help guide your decision. So if you want to do a primary care specialty and you're deciding maybe between a state school and a private school or an out of state school, you really do have to consider the debt, um, that you'll be accumulating. Now, uh, there's there's different programs now, like the public service loan forgiveness that you can um, work at a nonprofit and, and pay your debt off after 10 years, but we don't know if that's going to exist um, in the current climate. And even so, that can still be a big financial burden. So I think that that probably should factor into your decision at least somewhat. I think I was a little naive to this as a student um, because it just seemed like monopoly money to me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's a big number, but okay. And now that I'm on this other side and actually having to face paying that off every month, it's it's kind of a drag. Um, and so I would say that that's like the uncool but realistic answer that should not be the only factor, but definitely thought about. Especially have, having been on that boat, um, the first thing I can say is it's not as cool as it sounds. It's actually really stressful. And you're cons- And I was very, very afraid that by making the wrong decision, I would just screw over my life. Um, in the end, I went off 
um, two main things. One was just gut feeling. How did I feel at school there? I know it sounds cheesy and, and I know that that's like the answer we're supposed to give or something, but I really do that. That's how I made my decision to come to Iowa. And also the cost of living. Like I want to be able to afford to eat things once in a while. Yes. I like eating things. Eating things is good. I also had kind of a similar perspective. So with multiple options, um, one of the biggest factors for me was finances. So I picked a in-state tuition or in-state school where tuition I knew would be cheaper, um, especially with, you know, you have undergrad loans, you'll have med school loans, and it seems like the loans never end and you rack up all this debt and you want to pay it off eventually and be able to live your life. Um, the other thing I factored in was where my biggest support system was. Um, because obviously med school is very stressful. Um, I wanted to stay a little bit closer to my family and friends, um, which ultimately ended up being Iowa because my family's from Iowa. So that helps too. That's a great point. Um, I, your support system is so important. Um, Dr. Doyle, it sounds like you were already married when you went yes. to this? Yeah. Oh no, that's no. not true. Oh, <laughs> you forgot. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I did this really crazy thing where I got married um, after second year, right before boards. Oh, because I, you know, make really good life decisions. No, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was timing more than anything else. My husband was in law school and had graduated. And so it kind of just um, worked out and it, and it all worked out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I do think that the social supports make a huge, huge difference. Um, cause like you said, you want to have people around, um, cause it is, it is stressful. So I hope we've, uh, helped anxious pre-med. And all you anxious pre-meds out there. all you anxious pre-meds out there. I'd say don't be anxious, but come on, who are we talking about here? <laughs> you know, I had this really strange experience when I started medical school because I always kind of identified as an anxious person. And then I started medical school and I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> look at all these, look at all these people around me. Yeah. And you know, actually not. <laughs> maybe, maybe anxious pre-med will have that experience too. Yeah, you know, previously before medical school, I was very, I was actually very, very laid back, not that anxious and did not have daily migraines. After rotation started, all of a sudden, like, I don't know, all of a sudden now I'm propranol and have, and like have daily chronic migraines, <laughs> all sorts of pains. And now I'm like anxious off the charts. Like I'm anxious right now. <laughs> oh no. Who knows? I'm so sorry. Yeah. Med school changes you, whatever's. I got a cat. Well... <laughs> I got a dog, so... <laughs> you guys have your support systems. That's nice. Well, that is our show. Arisa, Aditi, Dr. Doyle, thank you for joining me uh, on the show this week. Yeah, thanks thank for you. having us. It was fun. And thank you, listeners, for Woo! making us a part of your week. For all your questions and for your t-shirt orders, if you haven't ordered your SCP t-shirt designed by me, the Woo! famous designer... Excellent. Uh, head on over to shortcoat.com slash store and pick yours up. They're on sale for just 15 bucks and all the money earned will go to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, an org whose mission of destigmatizing mental illness is important to us. If you're new and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. We're available anywhere. We love answering listener questions. So send your questions or whatever you like to the shortcoats at gmail.com or reach out on social media, or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. If we made you smile, gave you something to think about today, uh, right now, while your podcast app is open, and I know it is, give us some stars and a review. It's a cheap and easy way to be a friend of the shortcoat and helps us know we're doing the right thing. 
The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine student government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox, and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week.